Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for, once again, for the time that we get to spend here. We thank you for the food that we were able to enjoy and the fellowship that we were able to enjoy this past meal. We pray that you would please be with us now as we get ready to talk about the, these uh, subjects, Lord, and your creation. And we ask that you would please uh, have your spirit to abide with us and that you would bless the efforts of everyone that's here and that you would help us all to learn from each other. And we pray asking all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so I wanted to get into movement of ions from soils to the roots. So I shared with you guys earlier how we have cation exchange capacity here, both from the CEC colloids in the soil as well as the humus, uh, which you know, exchanges nutrients in and out of the soil solution, which exchanges nutrients uh, to and from the roots in the soil. And of course, those roots through transpiration will take those nutrients up into the plant, into various parts of the plants where those nutrients are needed. Now, uh, how are roots adapted for nutrient uptake? So if we look at the actual epidermal cells on the root, you see that they have these root hairs, and all that is is actually an extension of the epidermal cells to increase the surface area of the roots. And as you increase your surface area, you increase your ability, uh, your rate of diffusion, and your nutrients can move in and out of these cells. They, there's multi <clears throat> Let's see here. So here's an example of an epidermal cell with the actual root hair that stretches out quite some distance and it has the capacity to absorb moisture from here and bring it all the way to the actual root of the plant. And in that moisture, you tend to have different nutrients as well. And you see this is a cutaway image as we look deep into the actual plant. So that's length as well. You know, this length as well as you, know, you realize this is usually round and there's some surface area in there. Is, is what, or this length is what increases that surface area. Uh, let's see. Now, how do minerals enter plants? There's a lot of different ways that minerals enter plants. Now, remember I told you that those root hairs were epidermal uh, cells. So, so these are biological cells. That means that they do have a nucleus, they do have a mitochondria, they do have uh, uh, different proteins on the, on the membrane that are used for exchanging and uh, nutrients and uh, pushing hydrogen ions out of the actual plant system and against the gradient to bring other nutrients in. But sometimes uh, some of this water, for example, enters through, through apoplastic flow. This is one of the ways that moisture moves through the plants is through the actual exterior of the cell as opposed to through the cell through, which is a, a pathway through the symplast, which is referred to as, let's see, apoplastic. This is epidermal cells here. Uh, some plastic route, which is actually going through the cells, and you see through the plasma desmata, which is what it's called, these areas right here where two cells can actually exchange uh, moisture or other nutrients, and, and uh, as well as different enzymes that are released by the cell. And then uh, that can ultimately make it into the xylem, which is actually the, the vascular system of the plant. The xylem is the only portion of the plant, of course, that moves uh, moisture upwards. That's where your water absorption actually comes in. And this is associated with the stomato cells in the leaf. So when those stomato cells open up, the differences in osmotic pressure from the atmospheric air and the moisture in the soil is what actually pushes like a straw, sucks that moisture out of the soil, through the plant, and then out of the uh, leaves. So this is what actually moves. And of course, moisture is, or that movement of nutrients is always in one direction from the ground up. And those nutrients that are not mobile in a plant, like calcium, for example, will come in 
using the apple, simply the apoplastic flow, which means the exterior of the cells into the xylem and then move up into the plant. The only way they can move is through that means. It, and then, of course, once it's in this area, there are different exchanges and ways to get it inside the cell. However, it is critical that that, that concentration of calcium that's in those cells, when it comes, enters the plant and comes through here, you see how it goes through these places right where those funguses, I talked about that yesterday, where these fungus likes, uh, like to put their hyphae and actually break apart those cells and begin to establish their, their own little fungal colonies. So if you're deficient in your calcium, you know, this is the number one place where your calcium goes. You got to have that calcium there for root health. Uh, here, here's another way. So we were looking at surface area. Uh, a lot of people always ask about mycorrhizae. So on the left, we have endomycorrhizae, which is a mycorrhizae that actually penetrates into the cells, forming these symbiotic relationships with that cell. And then the hyphae will come out further uh, or drastically increasing the surface area and allowing it to actually get nutrients that the root hairs in themselves cannot actually, uh, uh, that are not available to the root hairs because they can excrete enzymes, break down bonds, release nutrients, trap those nutrients into their hyphae, and then bring them into the cell, which ultimately enters the plant. Here with ectomycorrhizae, uh, which is the type, this is, uh, I'll make a quick statement here. So the endomycorrhizae is usually associated more with trees and shrubs and perennials, while the ectomycorrhizae is associated more with annuals or vegetable production. And most of your garden plants are looking for ectomycorrhizae and forest and trees and orchards, etc. You're looking for endomycorrhizae. Now, this is not a solid rule. This is just a general application. So there, there are some ex exceptions. So, uh, but generally, this is what what it is. Now, when you have ectomycorrhizae colonies well developed around the root hairs uh, or really the root cells of your crop, you can see it becomes very difficult for another colony to come in and actually attack those roots and establish itself. In other words, there's already somebody there, so there's no room for it to come in. This is why some of these products are excellent for nutrient uh, or for uh, fungal protection, but, mo but their best benefits are felt when... Uh, we are looking at nutrient absorption, which I have a slide in here. I think it's not the next one, but I think I'll take a step back here and go back to looking at active and passive transport like I talked about earlier. So uh, passive transport is how calcium enters the system, but active transport uh, actually requires some sort of protein in the cell membrane and energy, usually energy, which is ATP, to move different nutrients in and out of the cells. Simple diffusion is like water. It'll just suck right in. No problem. And potassium is another nutrient that, though it can enter to a certain extent right through diffusion, it usually requires some sort of uh, protein on the cell membranes. And if your potassium gets too high, you get too much potassium into the cells, and it starts to block out other nutrients. But the important thing that I really want you guys to focus on is not all the fancy chemistry or biology. It's simply that in order to have all of this going on, you need to have mineral balances. If you have mineral imbalances, these proteins on the cell membranes are not able to function the way God designed them to. So I'll give you an example. In this case right here, you have what is referred to largely as the ATP pump. So ATP is... Uh, 
I remember right, amino triphosphate. Adenosine triphosphate, I'm sorry. And then that is energy, essentially, that is created through the metabolizing of simple sugars and the citric acid cycle, et cetera, et cetera. But this is energy that is consumed by the plant, so it costs the plant something. It's not free. And this will run, this will run and push hydrogen ions outside of this cell. And it pushes it against the hydrogen ion concentration. So you have these hydrogen ions in, uh, being excreted by your root cells, which then these hydrogen ions will bond with other cations go to, in order to go through certain proteins and bring those nutrients into the cell. Make sense? This is just one example. Now, there's much more complicated proteins, and I mean, I could go into that, but I think it's just too much. And it's not really the purpose or the scope of this class. But what I want you to understand is that this requires active transport. This requires active transport. In other words, it doesn't just come in. There's checks and balances on this. So if we have a pH that's too high, what does that tend to mean? That means that you're probably throwing things out of whack a little bit. You, if you get too acidic, you have way too, many, way too much hydrogen ion concentration. But if you're too alkalinic, then it has to push more hydrogen ions out of the soil. However, the issue is, you know, they come out and they say you should have this pH or you should have that pH for your crops. I'll give you an example like blueberries. They usually always say you need a pH of 4.5. Or, you know, well, tomatoes, for example, 6.5. That's a pretty big difference. Now, the reason why they tend to suggest that you need such a low pH or such an acid soil for blueberries is because blueberries, like most other berries, as you already know, are high in antioxidants. Those antioxidants require a lot of iron and manganese absorption. Iron and manganese are difficult to break loose in the soil unless the pH is very low. But most soils are not properly amended with iron and magnesium. Some of these soils are even have extremely high levels of iron and magnesium. But the problem is not that they can't get into the plant because the pH isn't low enough, which is general rule of thumb. It's usually because there's some sort of imbalance or microbial activity is not releasing those nutrients and making them available to the crop. Many people that I have talked with have followed Albrecht's system of mineral balancing and have grown pH, uh, blueberries very successfully in pHs that are 7, 7.5, 8 even. And it seems crazy. But in order to do that, like I said, these berries are very hungry for iron and magnesium. So you balance everything out, but then you also got to really increase the iron and magnesium in the soil because they're very hungry for those crops. As, the spirit, as, the, uh, as Sister White told us, every, the science of every, or the needs of every single variety needs to be studied. They're not all the same. You have your general rule of thumb, which we talked about earlier, your different base saturations, but sometimes you have to play and push certain numbers a different way based off of what you're trying to grow. So you wouldn't want to amend necessarily your soils or manage your soils for blueberries the same way you would for tomatoes or watermelons or, or other cucurbits. There are some changes that you have to make, but for the, the bulk of it, the most important part, which I talked about those macronutrients, tend to stay the same. I talked about what caused the upward flow within the xylem, which is the transpiration, the opening of the leaf, uh, stomatas. And this water, of course, moves up, and then it evaporates. 
Um, you have another portion of the vascular system, which is the phloem. And the phloem is what usually moves other nutrients that are mobile in the plant from the top down to the bottom. In the fall, when you're just before you start to lose your leaves, all the nutrients leave the leaves. They go down to the root system of the plant or the, or, of the trees. And those, that nutrition that's in those leaves, the majority of it goes down to the root system. The only one that really is an exemption is alder trees. And alder trees are famous because alder trees don't really translocate the nitrogens, the nitrates, from the leaves down to the roots. They tend to just drop the leaves and not worry about it because they're so good at fixing nitrogen. So there are some exceptions. So that's why alder trees are oftentimes planted in desert regions in order to try to get those nitrate levels increased in the surrounding area and try to use that leaf litter for composting or mulching or whatever you might have. Um, so b basic soil plant relationships. Um, I'm going to switch gears here a little bit. Yeah, I'll talk about nitrogen here. So uh, the take up of my plants, it, okay, I talked about this earlier. The uptake of nitrogen by plants is usually in two forms, which is nitrate or ammonia. And, of course, I, I think I spoke about nitrogen. I kind of jumped a gun earlier today. I guess if you weren't here, you, you would have missed it. But most of you, I think, already heard me speak about this. Nitrate will leach easily. Ammonia does not. And it also drives acidity there. Phosphorus is the same way. Phosphorus uptake is through orthophosphate, which is H2PO4 or HPO4. And uh, these are very important for different cellular processes, especially ATP um, and energy production and cell membrane production. And here's some visual uh, symptoms, including overall stunting of the plant, darker, dark green discoloration of the leaves or the stems. Sometimes in some crops, it's purple color to seen. Uh, deficiency should be amended with or corrected uh, using a variety of different uh, rock phosphates. I, I personally, I like to actually use rock phosphate, but before I apply it, I inoculate it with uh, different uh, bacteria that are known for actually mineralizing phosphorus. And I've actually managed to get very successfully get my phosphorus levels amended in areas where phosphorus is deficient using simply rock phosphate, uh, not just a straight synthetic form of phosphorus fertilizers. Um, here's an example of mycorrhizae. Mycorrhizae is another one. I like to use the product MycoApply, which is uh, four different varieties of glomular mycetes that are mycorrhizae that will form associations with vegetable crops. And uh, here's a look at the, the change in phosphorus uptake. And some of these things, you know, they're real popular for their ability to trap phosphorus. But you, we really need to take a, 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 I really wanted to show this to take a moment to show you that it's not just phosphorus that they're good at uptaking, but you see how we have here in this particular study done uh, back in 1979, uh, effects of inoculation of uh, endomycorrhizae on phosphorus and nutrient contents in corn shoots. So phosphorus here with no mycorrhizae was 750 pounds, no, micrograms per, no, yes, 750 parts per million. And then uh, mycorrhizae, with the mycorrhizae, it went up to 1,340 parts per million. This was in a scenario where no phosphorus was added to the soil. We're simply going out and taking phosphorus that's already in the soil, making it available to the crop. And then when they added 25 parts per million, you saw an even higher increase. So you saw it go from 2,970 with no mycorrhizae to 5,910 with mycorrhizae. So somehow that, what's that? One, two, about four times more with only 25 parts per million. And I don't even know what the math is there, but it's a huge difference. But what's also interesting 
here to note is that the potassium went from 6,000 to 19,900 parts per million with no addition to, of, frost, of uh, potassium. And then you look at all the nutrients, you see the same with calcium, you see the same with magnesium, with zinc, with copper, with manganese, with iron, huge increases with mycorrhizae. So this is definitely a way to try to reach nutrients that are in your soils that are locked up in forms that are not available to the plant. Question. Well, in this particular example, they used corn. And I failed to mention when I went back, the endomycorrhizae are actually usually better for grasses, monocots, like corn. So in this test here, they use endomycorrhizae. Uh, for your perennial, uh, uh, sorry, your uh, monocot, your dicots, uh, you would prefer endomycorrhizae. I'm sorry, exomycorrhizae. And uh, of course, it also varies with trees as well because those are perennials. But your question was, um, sorry, repeat your question. Oh, yes, I remember your question. <laughs> sorry. So, yes, you usually, with, per, with annual crops, it is best to re-inoculate every time you plant it. Well, see, that's the thing. Let's go back. Look at this picture. Where is this colony formed? On the roots. So you go in there and you kill the plant. You've destroyed the host. The spores that are produced on these mycorrhizae, uh, usually to get spore production, you need to actually stress the fungus. Oftentimes, you need to stress it, desiccate it, dry it out, and then reintroduce moisture. That encourages sporulation. However, it varies a lot from soil to soil and condition to condition. And even if you do get good spores, you may not get as good of an inoculation of that path of, uh, I'm sorry, of the uh, mycorrhizae. But also, uh, when you're transplanting plants, it's always best to inoculate it. Uh, I think in this case, they probably inoculated the seed. So whether you inoculate the seed or you inoculate the transplant or the media that the seed was planted into and then ultimately transplanted so that you get this formation when the plant is really young. Because when you think of a crop like corn, it's only out there for 120 days maybe, and then it's done. Myco Apply, M-Y-C-O Apply, is the company that I use, and they sell a variety of different mycorrhizae, and right now I think that they're pretty much lead the market. So with credibility and with quality. Um, so that would be my source for uh, mycorrhizae inoculants. Okay, so uh, let's see here. Yeah, so it's just interest, interesting to note how, you know, the increase in nutritional levels in, in each scenario with, uh, with the mycorrhizae. And you can see that there was some. I mean, this was obviously a, a phosphorus-deficient soil without really knowing anything else because when we look at it, you can see drastic increases uh, in the uh, nutrient uptake just by adding 25 parts per million of phosphorus. So that also kind of puts, I'm hoping that that'll uh, put a picture in your, or a visual image in your mind as to what one nutrient deficiency could do to other nutrients actually entering into the plant. So even if you had, maybe you had sufficient levels of potassium, but you were so deficient in phosphorus that the crop was just not gonna uptake it. So imbalances, again, oftentimes have to do with issues like this and why you'd be so deficient. So. When we look at potassium, it's the seventh most ab uh, abundant element on the earth. It's about 2.5% on the earth's crust. Uh, generally absorbed by plants in amounts larger than any other nutrient except nitrogen. So when we look at the MPK on the, on the uh, 
on your fertilizer bag or when you look at the NPK approach uh, and you start trying to guess your nutrient use or consumption with any crop, it's generally ex uh, accepted. It's a general rule of thumb. It's not a hard rule of thumb, but that you're going to use one part, I'm sorry, two parts nitrogen to one part phosphorus to two parts potassium. So this is just this way of thinking. So if you're adding a lot of, uh, so when you're using these, uh, when you're amending your soil and, you, and you, you start trying to account for what you're adding every year, if there's an imbalance in that equation, then you know that you're gonna ultimately throw it off. So maybe you could do it intentionally if you have a potassium deficiency, for example, perhaps you wanna put twice as much potassium as nitrogen. Uh, but also it doesn't account for nitrogen that you can expect to miner mineralize and become available from the organic matter that's in your soil. So you have to kind of think about what might already be there, both of nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium, when you use the, 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 that theory, the two to one to two. But uh, anyhow, that means it really is, it, it used most crops, especially fruiting crops, suck up a lot of potassium. Uh, calcium, of course, is a two plus, uh, two plus, uh, or a, what do you call it? It has a two plus charge, or and uh, it ranges. It's it ranges in plants from 0.2 to 1%, um, which is about a thousand parts per million. Uh, I, you know, this folks is really taken right out of the literature. I actually have ran my calcium as high as 6,000 parts per million, which is six percent, which is really really high. Uh, you don't really need to run it that high on vegetable crops, but I think, you know, 3% 3, 3 is really a better number. Uh, but it's amazing to me that the industry accepts these kinds of numbers, but when you get out and you start looking at um, uh, John Frank is one, uh, International Agricultural Labs, he pushes for 3%. Uh, Nova Crop pushes for 3%, which is out of the Netherlands. Um, there's a number of others I can't think of at the moment, but a lot of growers that really push for nutrition push for 3%. But the literature oftentimes tells you 0.2 to 1%. Yes, so if you know, that's you one, that was kind of in the video, he talked about that if your CEC is real short, then, or I'm sorry, real, if you have a low CEC, then perhaps, and you're trying to grow a nutrient-hungry crop, then perhaps you need to do multiple applications through the growing season. And that's where fertigation systems get real popular and you start injecting certain nutrients into the crop because you tend to suck them up. Uh, and potassium is definitely one of them. Uh, calcium is something you gotta come in and do some sort of top dress or lime it. Um, if you're gonna use the synthetic forms, you know, you, like I mentioned, you can use the stuff that's in a bag. Calcium nitrate is a common one. Uh, calcium chloride is another one. But anyhow, these nutrients are taken up oftentimes when you start growing in greenhouses now. When, I mean, when you throw up a greenhouse and you extend your growing season to year-round or even 10 months or something, that's a much longer period of time where you're really demanding from your soil. You're really asking it to put out. And when you do that, you know, if you have a low CEC, you have a smaller bank to draw from, you're going to have to come in and apply something. You've got to start looking at top dressing and you've you got to start looking at fertigation. These other things have to all of a sudden become a, you know, something you really need to think about because you're removing more than what's in that soil, which means that you're going to throw a nutrient imbalance right, um, uh, pretty, pretty quickly. So uh, calcium also regulates potassium uptake and a lot, the uptake of a lot of other nutrients as well as sodium. And um, 
There's a lot of other things that potassium also does. I'm going to move on to sulfur now. So plant absorbable sulfur is usually in the form of sulfate. Talked about that earlier. Most sulfate is associated with organic matter decay, as well as, uh, let's see, uh, acid rain, which I don't know if I put it in there. But sulfur and magnesium are taken up by plants in similar quantities as, as phosphorus, but in lower quantities, definitely in lower quantities than calcium. So again, it's probably about half or so. Um, but you can manage to take up quite a bit of uh, sulfur. And arid regions, if you're in an arid region, they tend to be very deficient in sulfur. Uh, elemental sulfur is oftentimes used uh, to acidify soils, and that has to be broken down uh, using, uh, through uh, metabolic or uh, bacterial processes to form a sulfate, and that's the process that actually lowers the pH. Uh, magnesium, like other cations, is available as magnesium 2+, and should represent 10 to 20% of the soil's base saturation. I forgot to mention that about the base saturation in calcium, that it should be about 60 to 70%. Um, of course, everybody knows it's needed for chlorophyll. Um, in the human body, there's a lot of different things that it's uh, used for, but we're really going to stick to plants here. So deficient, uh, deficient plants will see protein nitrogen decrease while non-protein nitrogen increases, inviting phloem feeding insects. Make sense? So anything that feeds likes to feed on simple sugars, which is usually these all these insects are very simple digestive systems. Uh, if you You've got any type of nutrient imbalance that's going to cause uh, a high nitrogen level in your crop, expect those, those, path, those, those pests to show up. It's very important for plant metabolism, the Krebs cycle. Does anybody know what that is? Photosynthesis, cellular respiration, and glycolysis. <clears throat> so the micronutrients, iron, zinc, copper, manganese, boron, chloride, molybdenum, nickel, etc., all of these are needed in your soils. Uh, to a greater or lesser extent. Molybdenum is a fine example of, I didn't put cobalt, did I? I really should have put cobalt on there. Okay, so molybdenum is needed in a really tiny amount. Cobalt is also just a tiny amount. I mean, I, I talk these great numbers, you know, I mean, I'm sucking up just thousands and pallet after pallet of fertilizers, but you know, when I buy molybdenum, it comes in the regular mail in about a two pound box. <laughs> Very little. It just takes a little bit, but it's gotta be in there. Uh, boron, it take, uh, I use a little bit more boron, but yeah, I mean, I only go through a couple pounds a year. And the thing is, boron tends to leach, and the crop doesn't really take it up, but it needs to be there. So if you're in an area with a lot of uh, high rainfall, you're going to leach that boron, and you may need to be adding it not because the crop is using it, but because it's, it's leaching from the soil. Well, I have to take, t how do I spread two pounds over an acre? Well, <clears throat> molybdenum is you get it you buy it in the form of sodium molybdenate and uh i put it in water and i and i, I cut it obviously and i put it in the fertigation system and then i don't put any for a while um and boron the same way i put six pounds of, of uh sodium borate and that usually lasts a very long time uh for me because i'm recirculating the nutrients but and the desert you know even desert soils with low precipitation can also be low on boron most soils are low on boron uh, you really need to have it tested and boron is an important nutrient because boron actually really controls a lot of your nutrient uptake uh, particularly calcium you know they, a lot of people think of boron you know if calcium's the truck that takes everything into town boron's the driver 
If you don't have that boron there, there's a lot of metabolic processes that won't happen. And you just, again, you just need a small amount. Uh, manganese and iron. So when you're balancing soils, when you're balancing soils, um, you'll notice that a lot of nutrients work together. Copper and, uh, I'm sorry, calcium and magnesium work together. So a lot of times when you, you really got to focus, your big focus is copper and magnesium. I'm sorry, calcium and magnesium need to be balanced. Sodium and potassium need to be balanced. Iron and manganese need to be balanced together. Zinc and copper need to be balanced together. Uh, what are some of the other ones? Those are the main ones. So if you have too much of one and less of the other, and with respect to each one of those pairs, you tend to really throw things out. Oh, yes, phosphorus and sulfur is the other one. And when you're balancing your soils, uh, you tend to really look at your iron content and your manganese content. So iron should be twice of manganese. Zinc should be twice of copper. Uh, calcium should be about five to seven times more than, cal than magnesium. And uh, these are all real rough numbers that I'm throwing out there. Sulfur is supposed to be half of phosphorus in the form of, in the form of elemental phosphorus. Uh, but I'll get into that a little bit more now. Okay, if you make a mistake, well, okay, if you apply by accident too much boron, it can become an issue. Yes, I think I showed yesterday some pictures of boron toxicity, which looks a lot like salt burn. Um, again, boron is a nutrient that, if I go back, what's boron used for? Uh, okay, so one, there's a product called 20 mule team borax, commonly used for amending soils but also commonly used for washing clothes as a detergent. Why is it used as a detergent? It's because boron has the ability to go in and break these fats, which these are fats that form the, uh, the membrane of a cell and get past, get past that membrane and bring things into the, uh, into the cell. So as a detergent, it has the ability to break greases and other things and other fats off of your clothes and down the drain and away from your, you know, dishes or your clothes or whatever you're washing uh, because it breaks those uh, phospholipids as they're referred to. But in the soil, excessive boron will take whatever's in the soil solution and shove it into the cell. So I have actually amended an excessive amounts of boron, but because the soil solution was balanced, I didn't have boron toxicity. Yes. Why? Because I'm forcing <laughs> a good wholesome diet into the plant. Now, if you're forcing something into the plant that the plant doesn't want, you'll have a boron toxicity. So that's an interesting thing to note. So again, if you balance that chemistry, even if you, whether it's natural or by accident, you have excessive boron in your soil, you'll be all right. And I've seen it over and over again, guys, uh, folks. I would, I'll look at my tank. Again, I have a recirculating system. I look at my tank, it looks like, you know, tea, real brownish color. I'll put one pound of sodium borate in there. Just one pound. It's 20% boron. If I did that at 8 o'clock in the morning, by 2 o'clock in the afternoon, it's clean water. Where did it all go? It went into the plant. But then, 48 hours later, the plant dumps it. <laughs> and the water's dirty again. <laughs> happens every time. It's really interesting. Um, so let's see, I think I was going to start getting into talking about balancing soils now.
No, but it's a hybrid system. It was hydroponics, and I converted it to a media because you can't do organic hydroponics. And the reason why you can't do organic hydroponics is because in the world of organics, you can't use synthetic fertilizers, right? right? So how do you get the calcium and the phosphorus into the crop unless you use synthetic calcium and phosphorus? You can't do that. So anything you buy that is organic and was grown hydroponically is going to be deficient in calcium. Calcium is not water-soluble. Neither is phosphorus. Calcium and phosphorus are best friends. If they happen to be moving in the water, they will bond to each other in bonds of matrimony that <laughs> death cannot do part. <laughs> they do not want to come apart. They have a serious affinity for each other. Thank you. That's, that's all we got. That's all we got. All right. So, you know, the problem they had, we had with, with when they were trying to do organic hydroponic, you could not get any calcium into the crop. Because you, you don't realize you've got to use so much calcium, foliar sprays just can't make up for it. It's way too expensive. Uh, and the world of organic uh, lettuce and baby greens, et cetera, et cetera, that are hydroponically grown, they just grow them deficient in calcium. And that's why 25% uh, of the food safety outbreaks where people get sick with different you know, pathogens and you know, salmonella or whatever, it's always lettuce. Because lettuce will grow quite happily in deficient soils. It doesn't fruit, just needs to grow plant tissues. But phosphorus, like I went back and I, I can go back and show you guys some of these, you know, complex processes. You know, nitrogen, we figured out ways to get nitrogen in organic production without, uh, without depending on synthetic fertilizers, right? You have a lot of these fish fertilizers, you have uh, uh, pea, pea proteins, you have different things you can use, you can put... Uh, alfalfa pellets down. You can do a lot of different things to make up for your uh, nitrogen deficiencies in an organic system without using synthetic nitrogen. But when it comes to phosphorus in the soil, it is, it's stored in a form that's not plant available. It's very dependent on, on uh, microbial biology breaking that down and making it available to the plant, whether it's a mycorrhizae doing it or bacillus uh, uh, polymyrexa or bacillus... Uh, I believe it's meg megatalysis, I think is what it's called. I forget the name. Uh, anyway, it's in a product called uh, TerraGrow. Product called TerraGrow has a lot of that bacillus in it. Uh, another product that is sold out of Florida, uh, Nutritec, has bacillus uh, polymyrexa. And both of those are bacilluses that are actually capable of uh, mineralizing phosphorus. So when you take your phosphorus, preferably your rock phosphate, um, you mix it with those microorganisms and you can expect that phosphorus to become uh, available to the crop. Um, that's if you actually need that phosphorus. All right, so this is not an entomology course, but that's okay. So, all right, so this time, this will represent time, right? So we'll say you have this period of time. What you want to see, what you want to see is nitrogen in your crop uh, or maybe you have something like this with time. In other words, this represents the, uh, the y-axis here is your nitrogen. Uh, so 
here it is with time. Now, say you start over here, I don't know, uh, you're just transplanted or whatever. Here, you, we'll call it transplant date. Uh, so that's your transplant date. Well, say uh, your flower date over here. So here we are, we're transplant. Here we are, we're flowering. Um, so we just transplanted. We need to start consuming nitrogen, right? Uh, we need to build the factory that's going to build the fruit, right? Or the barrier, whatever you're growing. If you are, if you have a nitrogen that level where you have some sort of slow release like that, relatively stable, it doesn't, assuming that everything else, you're talking about a healthy plant here, uh, you typically won't see these excesses of nitrogen in the crop. When you use synthetic fertilizers, what you do is you side dress it, you have some insanely high nitrogen level followed by nitrogen deficiency until your next nitrogen application, which maybe you decide to make over here, another huge spike in nitrogen followed by another deficiency. These pulses in nitrogen are what invite pests and disease. Because when you have these huge spikes, now this is probably too exaggerated, maybe I should have it down here somewhere, but you're essentially putting a whole bunch of nitrate into the crop. Uh, like I mentioned earlier, you end up with a lot of nitrogen into the plant tissues uh, that the plant doesn't know what to do with, and then it has to do something with it, and it uses it. But the sad thing is that say you put 100 pounds over here, and that's a lot, but let's just say you put 100 pounds of nitrogen, what the plant actually consumed from this time to this time is usually only 25%, which means the rest of it probably leached and did this right here. Leached, went right out of the water table and is gone. And that is usually caused by excessive moisture or rain. So if you make these heavy applications at first, it, you know, the plant can't take up but so much. And whatever it takes up is usually excessive and causes this nitrogen pulse or spike in the crop, and then, uh, which invites pests. And then, of course, the other 75%, you know, you lose about 25%. I'm sorry, you lose a good, a good portion of it. They say as much as 50% to leaching. The other 25% the other goes through what is referred to as denitrification, which Pseudomonas bacillus, uh, Thiobacillus, uh, Dinitrificans, and T. thiopanus are all these different fancy names for all these different bacterial organisms that'll take your nitrate and turn it into nitrogen gas, put it right back into the atmosphere. So these are reasons why you really don't want to uh, amend heavily with the, the, these type of nitrogen sources, instead you want to, I'll erase that, instead you would rather have some sort of slow release. And because of that, that's why they came out with slow release uh, fertilizers or control release fertilizers. And there's so many, I mean, there's a, all kinds of energy and money has gone into trying to figure out how to design these fertilizers normally that are sulfur coated or they're pelletized in some sort of way and put into something where as water comes down on it, it slowly releases it so you don't have these huge spikes. But even with those, what you end up with is, say you want nitrogen levels down here somewhere, you end up with, uh, depending on what the product is, some of them will release maybe a third of the nitrogen. So you still end up with a nitrogen spike. And it may not be out here, but some period of time later, we don't know what that is, 
uh, it'll, it'll have another spike and then it'll drop down and then it'll have another spike and drop down again. You're just kind of taming it a little bit, but there really is no technology in these new synthetic uh, fertilizers to give you a nice smooth even curve that you'd get out of this like you would. Um, actually, it's not even true that you would get that in this because in an actual, if all your nitrogen is coming from uh, organic matter decomposing in your soil, what you're going to have is a curve that looks something more like this. We'll say this is, again, your nitrate concentration and this is your time. You end up with, uh, we'll call this S over here spring. We'll call this over here other S over here summer. Uh, you end up usually with a rise in available nitrogen because this follows a rise in temperature, which means an increase in microbial activity in your soil. So your nitrogen, available nitrogen goes up, and then it, as it burns off that nitrogen, it starts to drop and comes down. A healthy soil should have this sort of a trend where you have your nitrogen about when you need it. So you may plant your seed here, but you don't need your nitrogen when you put your seed in the ground. You don't really need your nitrogen until about, until about the point where you're forming the first true leaf. Does that make sense? So you pass germination, usually takes a couple of weeks, and then you start to actually get your first shoot, it goes down into root shoot, which goes down into the soil. Then you get your cotyledons, and then you start to get your real leaf. It's about that point where the nitrogen starts to take up uh, to be taken up by the crop. So one of the tricks that folks like to push for is that when you're going to use these synthetic forms of nitrogen, that they, you know, again with controlled release, that say you plant over here on your plant date, well you do some sort of controlled release so it doesn't go, you know, maybe it becomes available two weeks later, then you have a huge spike and a drop and you come down. So here you are planting, now you're at the cotyledon stage, well, a true leaf stage, I'm sorry, a true leaf stage here. So now you begin to actually suck up that nitrogen. But the thing is that that nitrogen, you know, it needs it over a period of time. It doesn't need it all right away. And with corn, it actually, corn is one of the interesting ones because with corn, by the time it gets to about three feet high, it sucked up all the nitrogen it needs. It does, it, at that point, it doesn't matter how much nitrogen you put down. It doesn't want it anymore. You know, that's with corn and a lot of other grasses. So every crop is different, but that's just corn. So... The nice thing about having a healthy soil system is that when your organic matter is decaying, it's a slow process. You know, it's, it's kind of like taking the meat out of the freezer and putting it on the table. And, you know, what, you, what happens? You know, it, it has to thaw out first, right? And then uh, once it thaws out, well, then the bacteria that's in it wakes up. You know, it, it's inoculated with something. It's just been asleep because it's been in the freezer. That's our soils. You know, wintertime is sleepy time. The soil's frozen. But once, once that soil thaws out, everything wakes up. And that usually happens around 40 degrees when the soil actually reaches 40 degrees. So when you talk to the old time farmers, they'll tell you, hey, they walk out in the spring and they go out there and put a temperature probe in the soil. And when the soil temperature's right, let's get on the tractor. It's time to get to work. That was old school farming. Talk to the old timers and they'll tell you that. Uh, nowadays, you know, <laughs> with chemical fertilizers, weather looks about right. We've got so many degree days. Let's go farm. It's a very, 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 I mean, Sometimes those old, old ways or old wisdom, old conventional wisdom is better than what we do today. But uh, again, this is all microbial based. That soil thaws, 
those microorganisms wake up, they start working on those dead plant tissues, they start releasing those nutrients. And this is the same for phosphorus as it is for sulfur, as it is for nitrogen, and any other nutrients that are in the soil that are being released or mineralized as uh, tissues are broken down. So the best way to manage your nitrogen, again, is through organic matter, cover crops, and all these other things that I really didn't want to get into today, but that's what it comes down to. All right, so most vegetables, uh, okay, most fruits need a little bit more potassium. Most vegetables, now we're talking about the leafy, so um, fruit is something where you're pulling the fruit off, so like tomatoes, eggplant bell peppers, uh, beans, etc. cetera. Uh, you're taking the edible portion or you're taking the fruit off of that so it's a multi-harvest versus uh, growing kale or lettuce or collard greens or Swiss chard, etc. You're actually you're after the, the leafy portion of the fruit. That's the edible portion that you're looking to consume. Uh, I would probably push them a little bit different. Like I would never... You know, after balancing the soil, if I balanced it and I was happy with what I saw in the test and I was growing greens, I would not add anything because I know it's not really going to pull that much out of it. But when I start to push heavy in greenhouses and hoop houses or whatever, and you're taking a crop like tomatoes, which is a very hungry crop, nutrient-hungry crop for those of you that aren't aware of that, uh, in comparison to strawberries that aren't maybe half as hungry, and then you can go to cucurbits like watermelon, and uh, other, other uh, cucurbit crops. Cucurbits, they just want water. I mean, a soil like this, sandy soil, this is why they say that, that the cucurbits like sandy soils. Um, they'll grow anywhere, but anyway, they say this because um, they really don't pull that nutrition out. Uh, I, when I grew cucumbers, pff, I'll go through 15,000 gallons of water on the same day that I would have maybe have gone through 6,000 gallons of water on tomatoes for the same square, square footage. However, tomatoes clean the tank. The water comes back clean. <laughs> they suck everything up. It's ridiculous. You've got to keep feeding them. The cucurbits, water come, the nutrients just keep coming back. I hardly add anything to it. I mean, the difference in nutrient uh, consumption between the different varieties of crops is, is huge. It's drastic. So, I mean, that's, I could, I could talk about that for hours in itself, but I'm going to try to focus on balancing that, that uh, nutrition. And then, you know, if you, if you can do that for the probably 99% of you, you, you never have to worry about it. You get the money to throw up a greenhouse and you're going to be growing year round. Then you'll realize that, uh oh, I, 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 I'm going to run into problems towards the end of the season. I need to be amending multiple times throughout the year. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.